Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Comics and Cinema. I am your host, Alex Klein, and today we are talking about the X-Men. So, as the title of this suggests, we are going to be talking both about House of X, Powers of Ten, and The Dawn of X. So stick around, and we will dive right into a discussion regarding all of this. So, the plan is, as you guys are aware, I've been putting out reviews and uh, I guess you could say discussions on each of the issues that have come out in the House of X Powers of Ten series by Jonathan Hickman. Uh, it's a six issues apiece for 12 issues total. The final issue, Powers of Ten Six, came out yesterday. So that series is now complete. And so what I'm going to do is I'm kind of going to go over, and, and what I did too, which is is I'm excited to talk about, is I read, I reread the issues uh self-contained so i read house of x first and i read all six of those issues in a row and then i read powers of 10 second and read all six of those issues in a row because pre previously we had been reading them back to back as they came out so i wanted to see and that'll be the first thing i talk about i wanted to see if they could be read alone and the short answer is yes but the long answer is no, and that's because there are still a lot of things that are going on in these series that complement each other in such a way. Uh, and, and for example, like uh, House of X issue number two is such a stark difference from issue number one because uh, issue number two is the Moira issue, and it really is, uh, it doesn't really mesh well after issue number one. Uh, it seems almost like a break, like a commercial break, even though it's the second issue. But obviously, when you're reading them with the powers issues, it makes a lot more sense. So this is definitely something that I would recommend reading as a whole and in the chronological reading order that they suggest in the back of the book. And I have a feeling that when the hardcover collected edition comes out uh, this December, that that is how the hardcover will have them organized because it's going to contain both of them. So before we dive in any further on this, uh, let's go over who made these beautiful books. And that is uh, all of them were written by Jonathan Hickman with uh, art by Pepe Larraz on House of X and then art by R.B. Silva on Powers of Ten. And there was some assistance towards the end there, so I'm just going to give a shout-out to everybody who was involved. So besides those two artists, the color art was by Marte Gracia, with some help by David Curiel on this last Powers issue. And then all of them were lettered by VCs Clayton Cowles, with designs by Tom Muller. So my overall thoughts and impressions is that... Um, this is the greatest X-Men book that I've ever read in my entire life. That is my overall impression of this. And I've, I've, like I've said in prior casts, I've read quite a bit of X-Men. I haven't read everything, certainly. But I've tried to read at least what people are saying are the big books, the great books. And there's other ones that I still need to read. But as a longtime X-Men fan and a longtime comic book fan... This book is the epitome, or I'll, we can just call it a story. This entire 12-issue story is the epitome of comic books in every shape of the form. It is a great design of a comic book. It's a perfect sci-fi comic book story, and it provides a fresh take on the mutants and the X-Men in general, something that I don't think I've ever seen before in the X-Men's history, and that's because most of the time the X-Men are portrayed as the victim. They are usually cast out by society. Nobody likes them, and most of the time they are busy following Xavier's dream of cohabitation with uh, humans, so they're trying to save the humans or prove to them that they are good or that they should be loved just as they try to love the humans. And so this book turns all of that on its head completely. And it does so through a very interesting twist. And so that's what the one thing I got from all of this is this book, this entire idea and this entire push towards the future for the X-Men could not have been possible had Moira McTaggart not been a mutant. So uh, throughout the X-Men's history, Moira McTaggart has been a sort of, si not sidekick, but a, a secondary character in the X-Men stories. She was in love with Xavier for a time. She lived on, I believe it was Muir Island, and she was sort of a geneticist, so she researched stuff and uh, never was a mutant. She was just a human, and she was really good friends with the X-Men, a good relationship, and so there, the seeds were kind of planted in those stories unknowingly in that she was close with the X-Men and all this stuff. 
and uh, this book just turns that all in the head its head by making her a mutant and I probably should have advised this beforehand for those of you who haven't read this series I'm sorry that I spoiled that but I am going to be going into full spoilers for everything everything for House of X Powers of Ten and from what I know of Dawn of X too so I can give you guys an idea of what's coming up in the future for these X-Men books so the um, so the the power that Moira has is essentially she when she dies she is reincarnated back in the womb with all of the prior knowledge that she had from her prior life which is by far you know probably one of the coolest powers you could ever have because you know for a regular person I mean you're a mutant so you wouldn't be a regular person but for a regular Joe uh, boy wouldn't that be nice if you could live out the whole the life that you wanted. Uh, or at least, you know, imagine you like you were trying to live your best life and you get to the very end of your life and you realize like, you know, uh, you know, maybe I've got a couple of regrets, a couple of things I wish I could have done. And then you die and you're you're back in the womb and you're like, well, what's going on? And you're like, oh, no. And I, I would think for me, at least just knowing what I know, because if this happened to me, because I, I don't know, I haven't died yet. But uh, if this ever happened to me, that would be, I would know immediately. It'd be like, awesome. I'm a mutant. This is great. And so I would have probably the best life I could ever have in that second life, right? Like I would do everything that I didn't think I could do from my first life. And then no, like who knows how many, and at that point you would go, okay, I don't know how many more lives I have, but I'm going to live it up each and every time. I'm going to either try something different, do something different, be someone different. Uh, it would just be the coolest power in the world to have. And uh, so that just made her such an interesting character. And because of that, she transforms this whole idea of who the X-Men are and what they are capable of because she is burdened with all of these extra lives where she has seen what has happened. And so these books, and in truth, when I was reading them separately, I definitely got that same feeling that Hickman was trying to describe of what these books are. So the House of X series is, it takes place in essentially a month's time of uh, a very important month during the X-Men's lives. And then Powers of Ten is a look at four different timelines. Uh, the beginning, the very beginning, when Moira meets Professor Xavier, and then 10 years down the line, which is the House of X storyline, uh, year 10, and then uh, year 100, and then year 1000. And uh, again, guys, I, uh, I'm going full spoilers on all of this because I think it's important to look at this from a cohesive and collective view versus issue-by-issue uh, issue view. Again, if you want those issue-by-issue issue views, just scroll back through my uh, episodes. They're all on there. But uh, the reason I'm saying that is because year 1000 is Moira's ninth life. And year one, or no, I'm sorry, year 100 is Moira's ninth life, and year 1000 is Moira's sixth life. So within this book, we get to see all 10 of her lives and what happens in all 10 of her lives and how these different things sort of happen to, um, I guess, feed into what her plan is and how she feels the mutants should survive. And so that all comes from, and that's what's interesting too, you have to remember this all comes from a meeting she has with her destiny uh, or I guess you could just say destiny the mutant destiny but uh, in her third life she is met by destiny when she is trying to invent and does I believe invent a cure for a mute being a mutant and destiny's kind of got her tied up in a chair and says hey you know this is not the way that you go she's a precog she can uh she can see into the future and she says i've seen into your lives and i know where this leads and it is not good you need to be fighting for the mutants which is weird cuz she's a bad guy but she's she's dropping a ton of truth bombs on uh, on Moira, and she's like, well, what do you want me to do about it? And she's like, well, you know, you probably think that you're invincible, but in reality, I've seen your lives, and I know that you have 10, maybe 11 lives if you are if you do what you need to in that 10th life to get that 11th life, but that's it. That's all you're going to get. And she's like, so you basically, you need to live it up. You need to make these lives count and help out your fellow mutants because, uh, otherwise, you know, this is all going to be for nothing sort of thing. And uh, and so she has Pyro kill her. And then at that point, that's when she becomes radicalized. And she, uh, she begins her next life with urgency and starts uh, pursuing different avenues, trying different things. 
and says, okay, you know, uh, is this going to work? Is this, you know, does this not work? And so I have actually taken down some notes uh, for all the things that I want to talk about in this uh, issue because I think this is all really important. And these are, interestingly enough, these are all insights that I've gotten outside of the podcast episode. So a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about on here I've not talked about before. Because as I've stated many times when I'm recording, you know, I'm usually saying things, I'm not usually, I'm always saying things off the top of my head. I typically have a plan in place for what I want to do on these podcasts, but the plan is usually, okay, talk about House of X, read the issue, and then talk about it. So that's usually how I do it. But then afterwards, you know, I talk with other people, and uh, they give me new insights, or I reread the issue, or I go, man, you know, if I had a little extra time to think about it, I maybe would have talked about this. And so these are a lot of notes that I've kind of taken through throughout this series that uh, I had sort of question marks and things of maybe this is going to be something that people will talk about or that uh, Marvel will talk about in the future. So we'll see. But uh, the the big pieces that I'm going to be talking about in regards to this storyline is uh, Moira's timelines, the the big changes that this book gives the mutants, uh, the Marvel, the Mary Marvel mutants, and then the diary entries of Moira's book, and some thoughts that I had on those when comparing them with the timelines, and then the uh, sort of the timeline of House of X as well, and how that lines up. What's interesting too is I basically pieced these together by looking at the timeline that's in House of X 2, the uh, timeline that has all of Moira's lives, matched that up with the diary entries from Powers of 10-6, and uh, sort of tried to link all of them together with some of these questions that I've had while I'm reading it. So uh, we'll dive right in. So just so you guys know, again, this is sort of a recap, especially if you've read these, but I think some of this is important because, again, this stuff is given to us in piecemeal. Every issue, we get just a little taste of, uh, of something, or Hickman teases this sort of thing and then pays it off in another one. So when you read them all in one, at, when you read it all as one book, and having already read it, you can kind of piece together other things too as you read it. And then the final thing too I'll do, this is going to be a big discussion, but the final thing I do, I took screenshots of uh, every single um, issue, my favorite page on every single issue because I wanted to kind of just share at least what my favorite, sort of my favorite moments were in this uh, this book and also some very interesting pieces that I noticed in them as well. So uh, diving into this timeline piece, so the first the first life, and so Moyers had 10, the first life of hers was her regular life. She lived a full and happy life and died at the end. And then uh, she was born again, realized at that point sort of that she was a mutant. And at that point, she so, sort of heard Xavier talking on the telly and realizes that she needs to go visit him and go and go talk with him. She gets on a plane and the plane crashes. So that is her second life. So uh, another sort of... Uh, not necessarily important life. And then the third life, though, is where things start getting exciting. And so I have it written down here. The third, the title I would call for her third life is Destiny Arrives, kind of like when Thanos shows up in Avengers uh, Infinity War. And that's because that's the life, again, where Destiny shows up, stops her, and gives her a big spiel on, uh, you know, Everything you're thinking isn't really what you think. You need to step up your game and, and help out the mutants and then kills her and says, like, you need to do this because I'm going to come find you. And I actually, uh, it's probably a good idea. I need to reference that one as well because it, uh, she says some interesting things in there that I think may play out in the future. And again, like I said, there's a lot of stuff in here that Hickman leaves absolutely wide open. Uh, perfect for if anyone wants to come in and pick up on these threads that he uh, that he's got, and so there's a couple here. He says, uh, "My mutant name is Destiny, and I have the power to see the future, which is tricky with someone like you, since your power is reincarnation. One might think that would be impossible, seeing the future of someone who potentially has a limitless and unending one. But here I am. So she clearly can see all of her lives, and uh, she's they're trying to make her um, kind of fix and change her ways." But she uh, she just essentially explains to her that she says, You see, Moira, we are joined together now, you and I. You will know that I am out there waiting for this version of you. And you, knowing that, have a choice. 
change, or die. Help your people or I will annihilate you in all of your lives to come. So that kind of leads to an interesting thought in regards to what she says at the end of Powers of 10-6, the very last issue of this entire series where she's essentially telling Charles... They created the Quiet Council, and that's something we'll talk about a little later, but on that council, Mystique sits, and Xavier reveals that Mystique only is on the Quiet Council because Xavier and Magneto promised to bring Destiny back. So Destiny is dead right now in the current timeline. And so Moira gets very panicked about that, and so that's a really interesting piece because It sounds like Moira and Destiny are intertwined, and Moira's destiny is intertwined with Destiny. You're welcome. Uh, And so that that leads to an interesting point, and and my first sort of posit on this podcast is, I, a posit speculation, wish, I would love to see a Moira and Destiny uh, miniseries. Or, honestly, the way that these are, this could just be an event series for all I care. You know, have this happen next summer after all these uh, Dawn of X books are coming and have Destiny Destiny is resurrected somehow. Mystique maybe finds out and does the resurrection protocol, though she would have to have those mutants help her. But um, So Destiny comes back, and that would just make for a really interesting storyline. But that's uh, life number three. So she dies, and with that thought now in her head that she has to help the mutants, we get into life number four, which I'm calling the X-Men years. And so that's the life where she sort of falls in love with Xavier, Uh, early on really takes a shine to him and we get to see her sort of live out those years of the x-men during uh the avengers versus x-men the claremont years the like giant size x-men issue number one all that stuff and then same thing um they die at the end because of uh, the machines and so um the next uh place or life number five she shows xavier her mind in life number five and he decides to create a place, sort of like Krakoa, but it's called Far Away. And it's a, a mutant city where all of the mutants are living. He says, like, building a legion of mutants. The Sentinels come and destroy them then, too. And so then five, year five is over. Year number, or life number six is where a lot of questions come up. So, again, I reread the Powers issues. And there is absolutely nothing, at least that I saw in those issues, that hints at anything prior to year 1000. So, you know, the librarian and Nimrod don't really discuss anything. Oh. You remember the good old days back in, uh, you know, year one when Moira was around? They don't discuss anything yet. Moira and Wolverine are in the preserve, which I thought, and I confirmed it in here, it's, they mentioned that this preserve is to preserve a couple of humans, basically, like a museum, to, like a zoo, sort of, to put, why are there mutants in there, and why is it specifically those two mutants, that's my other question, and my bigger question on that one is, how did they live that long? I understand that it's possible Wolverine can pull that off, but how did Moira live to be a thousand years old? And is that because maybe they were feeding her specific types of food, or does she have some other power that we don't know about? I have no idea. I really don't. Though the one interesting thing I will say too is, uh, and this is a side aside as well, in Powers of Ten, issue number one, uh, the one of the mutants, the mutant who dies right away is a he he's saying something as he's dying he says there was a dream our dreams are the same while you slept the world changed and uh the machine that's about to kind of kill him says that uh says or she says uh, they're wiping on termination now some kind of memnotic trigger when they start to flatline so like wiping their brains so is that the trigger and that trigger to me, that, that sounds a lot like what Xavier says to the humans. And uh, it, this year 100 is life nine. So did is Xavier quoting himself in year 10 when he is, uh, or life 10 when he's talking to all the humans at the, uh, in powers, or is that house, house five? Guys, I'm, I'm kicking myself as I go through this stuff because I have to remember every single issue off the top of my head. Regardless, that happens in house where he says, while you slept, the world changed. Yet these mutants are saying it in a whole different life. So maybe there's something there as well. I don't know. That's, that's a little tough for me, but as we move on, the the one of the pieces that I wanted to touch on, and this was the um, the panel that I saved from, uh, I believe this is Powers One. Uh, yes, yes. So Powers Issue One is 
Silabel, the mutant who was captured in year 100, is in a stasis tube in the year 1000. So to me, that means that that happened again. That uh, in life six maybe happened sort of the same as to have Silabel get captured at that point. But what's interesting to me as well, and I don't know what page this is from, but it's it's the first page of the year 1000. The librarian is wearing a Cerebro helmet. And he uh, it's the exact same helmet that Professor X has, except that the front of it is orange. And he specifically says, too, to the Nimrod, he says there's too much machinery floating around inside there and not enough soul to save, let alone copy. So that means that uh, I wonder if Moira knew about this, that maybe what the librarian was doing with his Cerebro is... um, being that it's like an archive librarian type job, maybe Moira told that to Xavier of that's how you can, you know, copy the the mutants' minds. I have no idea. They don't go into that in too much detail, but I thought that was really interesting. So that's year, and so year one thousand ends with the uh, the librarian and that whole sort of society about to be ascended into the phalanx. And uh, Wolverine kills the librarian and then kills Moira now with the knowledge of the horrible truth that uh, they always lose, that they will always lose, which is interesting because um, that's only her sixth life. So then in her seventh life, that life she was tasked with killing the Trasks, all of the Trasks. She figured, oh, if I kill them, that they uh, they won't... Uh, there won't be any more sentinels or anything. And that's when she learns that it doesn't matter who it is. Someone's always going to make them, which is weird because that's specifically what the librarian told her in life six was that, you know, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Sort of like Thanos as well. He says, it's inevitable. The, we, the, not we, but he says the humans are the ones that are going to end you. It's not the machines. The humans use the machines to end you, but it's the humans. And so I guess maybe she wasn't paying attention. She wasted that life in my opinion. So then life eight happens, which is when she joins Magneto and uh, they die in that life as well because they, you know, they radicalized all the Avengers and the rest of the X-Men try and stop them. Life nine is the apocalypse life where she joins apocalypse and that life she lives to be a hundred years old. Uh, and that one makes more sense because she kind of looks like Apocalypse now. So it clearly Apocalypse put some sort of uh, power into her probably to make her live longer. But in that life, that is where they get the Nimrod file. So that's where they find out the origin of Nimrod, where he comes from, all that stuff while they're fighting him. And so uh, she Wolverine gets that back to her. She puts it into her psyche and then he kills her again in this one. Uh, sending her back now with the full knowledge of when Nimrod will be created. So that's like the final piece that's put into play in, uh, for for Life 10, for the House of X issue. And so that whole series, I like. I, I personally like House of X more than Powers of, of 10. And that's strictly just because, to me, there's uh, a little... I, I'm not a huge fan of the jumping back and forth between timelines. Don't get me wrong, I love it, and I love that high concept. But in the same vein of like reading multiple books at the same time, like it's nice to just focus on one timeline at a time. And so I like that House of X is just the one for the most part. And so uh, in House of X, that one, it kind of jumps back and forth. But I, I put down, like I said, a little timeline of what happens in House of X. And so what happens is uh, Professor, X- Professor Xavier, he um, he sends out a message to the humans and says hey you know we're here we're the mutants get used to it we've got these flowers these plants that are going to benefit you guys but you need to recognize us as a mutant nation and again that's that's after moira has shared with him the knowledge that she has gained through all 10 of her lives and so he's he's become radicalized over time as well and that's where her journals kind of come in to explain that she had to spend a lot of time sort of breaking him and uh, so once that all happens, he, him, Magneto, and Moira kind of team up. And that's probably one of my favorite things of this whole series is the team up between the three of them because I, uh, you never really see Magneto teaming up with Xavier, which is weird. And we're really going to dive into this because this was something I noticed as well, which was uh, Magneto and Xavier have a schism. And Moira mentions that in her journals, but it's confirmed in the timeline as well. And the way that it lines up is strange. 
and uh, definitely have some thoughts on it. But we're just going to stick with this timeline for now. So he message he sort of uh, messages that telepathically to all the humans. Heads up, uh, we're going to want to vote on making us a sovereign nation, sort of thing. And so then the first that was in uh, the sixth issue. And so then in the fit in the first issue, it starts with the humans showing up to the drug meeting, essentially, in Jerusalem, and they meet with uh, Magneto, Xavier's not there, but Magneto's explaining to them sort of what's going on. While he's doing that, he has separately tasked Mystique, Sabretooth and Toad to get those Nimrod files from uh, the da- from damage control because uh, that's it's part of Tony Stark's. Uh, uh, part part of his his company sort of thing. They mention it in the infographics, but what happens is, uh, and they mention it in multiple infographics. But so Moira has the files for, um, you know, when the Nimrod's going to be made and whatnot. But then they they created a sort of notification, so they were notified that oop, this is this just came online. Like the the mother mold is coming online. The Orcus thing. Uh, like soul's hammer out in space has come online. We need to act now. So they send them there. Go get that stuff. And uh, when they get back, they, they give that to Xavier, and Xavier starts up the mission with Cyclops and the X-Men to send them out to space, to send them to Orcus, to destroy that mother mold so that Nimrod cannot be created. And so, in a sense, that that buys... I mean, you could say that's them winning, but you could also say that that's them buying them time, because who knows if it's going to happen again in the future. Someone else is going to try to make it. I have no idea. But that's what happens. They go out there, and that's when the X-Men all die. They all die on Orcus uh, because of, you know, one thing or another, but it's just, it's super sad. And even reading it again, I still got choked up when I was reading their deaths, even knowing that in the next issue that they were going to get resurrected. And so that's what happens. They, they are resurrected. We learn sort of the next big secret of the mutants, which is that they can't die. And so they're resurrected. And then the vote is made and they are recognized as a sovereign nation by almost everybody in the entire world. There's a couple countries that don't recognize them or won't, and I'm sure that is going to be dealt with in future series, but that happens, and then they, uh, they at the same time, simultaneously create the Quiet Council with all of the council members, which are uh, Professor Xavier, Magneto, and Apocalypse, and then uh, Mr. Sinister, Mystique, and Exodus, uh, Storm, Nightcrawler, and Jean Grey, and then uh, Sebastian Shaw, Emma Frost, and w- the unknown Red King, who my prediction is Kitty Pride, but we will see exactly how that is. And then uh, th- th- it's a celebration, so the mutants are all celebrating because they've won. They defeat, they defeated the ultimate enemy, the future creation of Nimrod, and they got their their place to be recognized as a sovereign nation, which is really, really, really exciting and and huge news. And so. That leads me to my next bit, which is the timeline piece in regards to Moira's uh, journal. And so this is really going to kind of be the big discussion for this. So uh, Moira in Powers of uh, Powers of Ten, issue number six, this last one that came out, has some journal, three pages of journal entries. And these entries, I tried my best to coincide them with... Uh, with what's happening in this timeline because I'm assu- the assumption is this all took place all these journal entries are from her 10th life right it would she wouldn't be able to have a journal entry from her prior lives because she died so this is all from her 10th life we've got entry number five which is months it says something like months later we finally like I finally recruited Xavier along with that in her timeline for life 10 she meets Xavier in year 17. So then maybe that means, I don't know, around like nine, maybe year 18 or something. I, I don't know, is when she recruits him. But what's weird to me, and it doesn't make sense, is she marries the McTaggart guy in year 25. And then she has Proteus in year 31 with her husband, with, uh, with McTaggart, which does not make sense in regards to the uh, journal entries and so I don't know if that's her that she had an affair with Professor Xavier uh, and essentially would have you know lied to her husband that hey this is our kid because uh, oh and it just says uh, 
Moira gives birth to Proteus in the timeline. And again, that's year 31. And in year 25, she marries Joseph McTaggart. But in her uh, in her journal entries, and, and we'll, we'll move down there, but there's a journal entry where she says her and Xavier are planning kids or planning what they can do to make kids. It says... Uh, he had the most, uh, oh, wait, I have used my expertise in genetic modification to find potential matches for both Charles and me to produce such a mutant. There are several possibilities. So did she have the kid with Xavier or did she have the kid with uh, Joseph McTaggart? I don't know. I don't know if Hickman's going to answer that, but that's an un a very unanswered question. So uh, that first one is her meeting, the meeting and recruitment. And then diary uh, number 12 is redacted. I did not mention this yesterday, but my thought is there are two redacted journal entries that Moira has in this list. There are also two times that were listed that Xavier uh, put an older version of his mind into himself, which, as we discussed... The only reason for that would be to forget something or would be to wipe your mind and, and you know, re basically reboot from a prior version of yourself. Why would you need to do that? Well, the so, issue, so uh, diary entry 12 is the redacted entry, so it's possible that she redacted it because Xavier uh, got mind wiped or they, had, they did something that required that because then journal entry 14, so two entries later, specific, specifically states that, says... My concern, my paramount fear is that I fracture his psyche and eventually unleash something unexpected on the world. And so maybe both of these redacted sections were times that she did break his psyche and unleashed some sort of onslaught. And I have no idea what it is. I don't know. And I, I'm pun is intended on that because he was part of onslaught. But I don't know what it is. And so there, there's another unanswered question. That would be another thing that I would want to know. And that would be another thing that I would love to see dived into. Hell, that's a great miniseries. I would I would watch, read that mini, read the hell out of that miniseries of, of watching Xavier crack. So that's, that's journal entry 14. Journal entry 17 is the one where they plan. Uh, it says the idea of resurrection. So that's when they come up with the resurrection of the mutants and, and figuring that out and the planning of the kids. And so that doesn't line up that between uh, diary entry number five and diary entry number 17, which is 12 entries, uh, almost, uh, what is it, uh, 10, uh, 13 years have passed. So is she only writing an entry every year? I have no idea because year 31 is when Proteus was born. So it would have actually even been later than that. Um, 31 may have been later. So uh, because the next one is journal entry 22, which is when they recruited Magneto. And that happens in the timeline in year 43. And then between year 43 and 47 are journal entries 22 and 52. So again, take that with a grain of salt. I'm not sure. And the reason I mentioned that, I'll get to it. So uh, the journal entry for 29, 29 is when Apocalypse shows up. Journal entry for 35 was redacted. And that's my second mind wipe that I think. 48 is when they recruit Sinister which happens in Powers 4. And I want to point out as well at this point that in Powers 4 and in uh, Powers 2, when Moira and Charles recruit, uh, uh, recruit Magneto, he is wearing his traditional red and purple garb. But in House of X, he is wearing a white garb. I don't know what causes him to change because as we move into this, she mentions too that Chimera, because of this whole them meeting Sinister, Chimera have now been produced decades earlier than they were meant to. This brings another question, which is if that year 1000 or year 100 aren't coming to pass because those were old lives, but are certain possibilities of what are going to happen in the future, if Sinister is making the Chimera early, does that mean we will see characters like Rasputin, Cardinal, Silobel, will we see them sooner than anticipated because at this point they only existed in year 100 and granted they're you know they're adults then so maybe they've been around since year i don't know yet 90 year 80 who knows but maybe are they going to show up now in year 20 
So very soon, so maybe in like two years, our time, uh, there's a comic book that has them in it. Because if that's the case, hang on to your powers of X or powers of ten, issue number one, because that is a first appearance of all of those characters, and I guarantee you they're going to show up again. There's no, there's no way Hickman would have made them without there being future plans for them in the future. So that was 48. 52 is when they lose Magneto. So it says we have lost Magneto. I had hoped, given the opportunity, to help make him a better man. Instead, all we have made is an enemy. I'm just as bad as they are, if not worse. And so I, f- I forgot about that and didn't. I wasn't paying attention. So Magne- they lost Magneto. So somewhere between when they recruit Magneto, when he's wearing the purple and red, and when he's in the white with them back, he comes back. And I don't know what causes him to come back. The only thing that I can think of is Genosha, and that is because in this timeline, uh, so Moira and Xavier recruited Magneto in year 43, so journal entry 22, year uh, when he recruited, 43, and then in year 47 is the schism. So in that four-year time frame are uh, 30 journal entries. And so they lose Magneto, which is in 47, and then in 48, one year later, is when she fakes her death, which is the the last journal entry, the 57 journal entry, faked death. And then one year later is the genocide at Genosha. So that's super interesting. And my thoughts on that is that there's some sort of schism. I don't know what caused it, but that would be my number three question now. Or, or number three wish list sort of thing is uh, a storyline involving the schism between Magneto, Xavier, and Moira, and figuring out not only that, but how they, why they came back together. Because we don't see why they came back together. Those are the only two times, as far as I'm looking in this book when I read it, that we see the old Magneto. And then the rest of the time is the white, the white-clad Magneto, who is full bore on Xavier's side. So I wonder if... Maybe Magneto died, or they killed him and resurrected him and, and put his mind back in and explained to him, like, you did this, you screwed up royally, and we need to move on. Because Genosha happens, and that's when the 16 million mutants die. So this timeline, Magneto leaves and creates the island of Genosha. I, I may be off on that. He may, I, I thought he did Genosha. Regardless, all those mutants die, and I could easily see Magneto losing his mind at that point and going back to Xavier and saying, hey, we need to put our differences aside. I know I said I was going to be with you till the end of the line, and I left, but I'm back, and I'm better than ever, and I want to be there with you. And that's 49, and then year 52 is House of X, so that happens in a three-year time frame. So three years between the genocide and House of X. And so that's why it's so fresh on their minds in that issue uh, was that House of X four when he said when they say no more no more uh, because it had just happened that was just a couple years ago and that so that's the um, that's that part so that's the the journal entry piece of this discussion so there's a lot to unpack in those journal entries because I don't know I have to trust that Hickman knew what he was doing when he picked what years were what when he picked what entries were redacted or not. So we will see if those sort of things play out in the future. So that that kind of concludes the journal entry piece of this discussion, and I went over the timeline piece as well. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about uh, before we move on to something um, to another the another next piece is the the what I think are the biggest takeaways from this series. So Hickman accomplished Hickman and company accomplished a lot in this series a whole hell of a lot like more than more than we asked for um, more than we deserve more than we thought we needed uh, whatever you want to call it he he gave us a king's ransom and uh, the biggest things that i thought the biggest takeaways for me were the flowers of krakoa was my first thing so we get these drugs that are uh, there's there's six flowers. So if you guys you guys may forget this, but there are actually six flowers. So there are three that are for humans, and there are three that are for mutants. And this is interesting as well. So the human ones are a uh, one that extends human life for five years, a drug that is a basically a super drug, a super antibiotic, and then another one that cures diseases of the mind. 
And uh, just the thought that all three of those are out there is so cool. I think that's so awesome. And I'm really excited to see how that plays out in the future issues of Marauders. And we'll, uh, we'll jump more into that soon. But then there are three for mutants. And those are Gateways, Habitats, and No Place. So Gateways are a flower... Uh, the flower, a flower that grows a gateway, and it's a pathway from where one is planted to its twin gateway on Krakoa. So, uh, the as you've seen in these issues, the mutants will plant uh, a seed, uh, like the one that was in Jerusalem or the one that was in uh, yeah, the blue area of the moon, and then those uh, gateways take you into Krakoa or back to the moon. So it's essentially like a, a teleporting sort of thing. And then the habitats are a self-sustaining environment, a biome that is part of the interconnected consciousness of Krakoa. So imagine that sort of as like pitching a tent in a random place. So you pitch your tent. It's like the, the Harry Potter type tent where when you pitch the tent, you walk inside and it's a, a giant, you know, a giant room or in this case, a giant habitat or biome. But then the third one, which is interesting, we kind of forgot about it. This no place is a... Uh, Ah, this is Moira's. This is where Moira lives. The, uh, no place, if you guys remember the the bubble that's underneath Krakoa. And I didn't realize this, but check this out. This non naturally occurring flower produces a habitat that exists outside the collective consciousness of Krakoa, a place within the island ecosystem that Krakoa doesn't know exists, a Krakoan tumor. How that's like crazy to me. So. It's non-naturally occurring, so that means it was made, and it would have had to have been made by somebody that isn't Krakoa or Cypher because they would know. So it was either either Moira, Xavier, or Magneto because they you know they know what's going on. But so that's that is why Moira lives down in that no places because even Krakoa doesn't know that she's there, and it makes it interesting when they call it a tumor because it's sort of a bubble. It looks sort of like a tumor. But what I thought was interesting too is if you go back and read Powers of Ten issue number one. Uh, I believe it's issue number one. It's issue number one or two. Uh, whatever is the one where they, they bring back the information to Apocalypse, they are using a black seed of Krakoa in that one, and that black seed is taking them to no place. So they know about no place in that one, and that's obviously because they know about Moira or Apocalypse knows about Moira, and uh, I just thought it was cool that they referenced it in that spot too. So that's the first big takeaway, I think, from the X-Men is that because that's going to change a lot of things in the future. The next one, we've talked about it already. That's Moira. Moira herself is a huge change and a very welcome change in my opinion. Uh, the next one is that the bad the bad guys are the good guys and the good guys are the bad guys and no one is either a good guy or a bad guy. So just the fact that in multiple pieces we have seen the uh we have seen like magneto is now friends with xavier xavier is friends with magneto all of the villains have kind of dropped their villainous ways for now and they are uh kind of all just one family now in uh in krakoa and that's the next one which is krakoa itself is so cool that's been utilized sometimes in the past but not to this effect at all and so krakoa is going to be a huge piece of this story going forward i feel and along with that is the mutant sovereignty so the fact that they are a recognized nation state now just the same as any other country i think that is just so crazy. people loving it wanting to get in and maybe they can't and then the final one is that mutants can no longer die and that's because of the resurrection protocols that uh, they have with this amazing team of uh well, let's see if i can remember it but it's uh elixir proteus hope uh gold balls and uh oh man who's the last one i don't remember but uh, and i'll pull it up here as we're talking but that part was really cool that was one of my favorite scenes in the whole story because um, you know, some of these mutants we, we hadn't really seen or they were kind of on the wayside. I said Elixir, right? Um, Elixir, Proteus. Oh, yeah. And then Ava Bell, who uh, is the one who manipulates time. So um, that just was so cool. But actually, that brings me to another question mark that I have that uh, going into this in the future is if mutants can no longer die, if their minds are backed up and their bodies are recreated and then their mind is put back in there, doesn't that mean that Moira can never die now, and so she'll never get her 11th life? Uh, because if she does die, <clears throat> won't that reset everything and make everything kind of go away? I mean, I guess she, yeah, I suppose she's the one who's resetting it. 
But uh, that would be something I would really like to see dive into because she can't, right? She'd just bring her back so she could live forever, just like all the other mutants can live forever. So that is going to be a really interesting piece of it going forward. But guys, overall, like I said, this I mean, I just i just talked for another 45 minutes about this series, and that's on top of the 30-minute conversations that I've had for all 12 of these issues. This series has a lot to talk about, a lot to say. And so as the final wrap-up for this, like I said, I'm going to go over what my favorite moments were in all 12 of these issues and uh, they are all expressed in these pages that I have so uh, in House of X issue number one my favorite part of that issue besides all of it and and that's my answer for all of them my favorite thing of them is all of it but uh, and, and I, I'll, I'll agree that some of the issues are definitely stronger than other issues and they're not necessarily the red issues in the back but uh, just certain issues to me have held more weight. But so in, in House of X 1, my favorite part of that one was Magneto's speech at the end when he says, uh, he says, she says, so you summoned us here to Jerusalem to what? Threaten us? And Magneto says, a promise is not a threat, Ambassador. And I summoned you to this place for wholly superficial reasons. You see, I know how you humans love your symbolism almost as much as you love your religion. And I wanted you, I needed you to understand, you have new gods now. Oh, guys, that just, uh, that is, that may be one of my favorite lines from the entire series. Uh, From House of X, issue number two, my favorite part of this and my favorite page, panel, whatever you want to call it, is the transition between the page of Moira dying and it's saying Moira's second life began in utero. That is... Just that revelation that Moira was a mutant, this whole second page, as benign as this page is, there's no action, nothing exciting. I got chills reading it. I got so excited reading it. This was the moment, besides everything that had kind of come in Powers and and House, when I said, okay, this series is going to change the world. And it did. House of X, issue number three, um, would have been, I I picked the page where uh, Angel, or Archangel says, I don't get it. Why no plants? And uh, I think this is is Husk or, or someone else on the team says, yeah, call me crazy, but it seems like a good idea having an emergency way home. And then they kind of explain that, no, we don't want that because if we lose, you know, they're going to you're, you're basically uh, it says you're only thinking of success, not planning for failure. And I just that scene, that's kind of when if you didn't see it coming before, you kind of know that's the message that they're not coming home. And so that part's kind of tough to swallow. And even, too, as it goes down in the pages also when uh, Wolverine's explaining that these humans that they're they're talking about, like, oh, what about the human crew? Like, are we going to try and avoid casualties? It's like, uh, no, like, we need to get the job done. That's way more important. So that was my favorite piece, I think, from from issue three. Issue four is, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually quickly scroll through the rest of these. Yeah, okay. Issue four is my favorite page panel from the entire series, which is when Nightcrawler and Wolverine teleport out onto the Mother Mold's final piece to get it off. So that whole panel, Wolverine and, and Nightcrawler, who are BFFs and are two of my favorite mutants. Nightcrawler is my favorite mutant. And they just, they have a one final great talk with each other. And that scene just really hit home for me. Like I said, I got choked up reading it even now. This is like the fourth time I've read it. And then for issue number four, is that four? Nope, I'm sorry. Issue number five is the scene when the five mutants walk out. When uh, Polaris is talking with Magneto and says, here they come, Father. And he says, yes, here they come. And they all walk out and they're all looking just so badass and look like they're just the saviors. And I think that's just so cool and was such a cool piece to turn these mutants who a lot of people hadn't thought twice about into really important characters, especially, and my favorite too, in terms of the surprise was, uh, was Hope Summers. Obviously gold balls really got me excited too, but just the fact that they pulled Hope into this and, and her name being Hope, I thought was really cool. And then obviously you got Proteus too, who, Again, allegedly the the son of Xavier and Moira, yet there, you know, it says that she's married to Joseph. So what's going on there? 
Uh, and then issue number six, obviously, guys, it's the celebration at the end, and it's specifically the page where Wolverine has got his arms around Cyclops and Jean, which to me says that that feud is over. And then, like I said last time, him taking a beer to Gorgon is by far the coolest thing in the world. Uh, I love Gorgon, and I loved that run with Gorgon and Wolverine that will at some point be one of the monthly comics that we read just to get... Uh, it's it's called uh, Wolverine Enemy of the State. It's actually where... Uh, this is the first appearance of Gorgon. That's uh, Mark Millar created him, I think. But that's, that's for House. And then for Powers, the first... Uh, Powers 1... Uh, my page, like I said, now uh, having read read all of it, is that page where the librarian has the Cerebro helmet. I think that is there's a lot of foreshadowing there. I think that they don't touch on, but maybe they will later. And then for issue number two of Powers is uh, when Scott says, "Does it need doing?" and Xavier says, "Yes." And then Cyclops says, "Then it will be done." I just that is to me is ultimate Cyclops, and I thought that was just the coolest thing in the world. Man, I keep saying that because this whole book is the coolest thing in the world. So then uh, issue number, well, yeah, yeah, one, two, issue number three, that's when we find out that Life 9 is the year 100, and it's the page where Wolverine kills her, uh, kills Moira, and, and it's, a, it's a cool mirrored one because that's actually my favorite for one of the future ones. But he says, I'm sorry, and she says, it's okay. I have what I need now, and this, this is what you do, and then she kills him. And then in issue number, uh, yeah, that was three. Issue number four is when Professor Xavier shares his plans with uh, Cipher, and uh, he kind of sets him on his way on Krakoa to learn the language and figure things out. That part was just awesome. Issue number five is when uh, Xavier goes to recruit Namor, and Namor says, "Do I strike you as someone who's just now realized how much better I am than everyone else?" Uh, Hickman just really knows how to write Namor, and I really hope he gets a chance to in the future. And then, yep, like I said, issue number six is when uh, Wolverine kills Moira in the sixth life and says, don't worry, darling, this is what I do, which harkens back to the ni- in the ninth life she would know now because he says, this is what you do because she, you know, she's experienced it already and he has no idea. But so, yeah, those are my favorite moments in this series. Obviously, there's others like when uh, Xavier recruits Magneto, when uh, Xavier recruits Emma Frost, when they go meet Sinister, there's just so many great dialogue bits and action bits in this story that make it such a cool thing to read. It's this is this I have no doubt in my mind that this is going to go down as one of the most important Marvel stories, and at least I would argue that maybe at least in this decade, uh, since we're we're nearing out 2019. For sure, this decade, but I would I would almost argue in Marvel's history just because of the status quo shift that it has. And so, with that, I'm going to wrap up this uh, this discussion on House of X and Powers of X. So, uh, well, wait a minute, guys. Is that's is that it? Did Mar- is that kind of Marvel said that's it, right? No. Oh, oh, there's more. Oh, there's years more. Wait, they, they've got plans for how long, guys? Uh, now that House of X and Powers of X are concluded, we are now officially moving into the Dawn of X. And I will briefly, as brief as I can be, uh, go over what this means. So the Dawn of X is essentially it's essentially the next step in what Marvel is trying to tell with this mutant story, uh, the mutant story. So they uh, so you guys are aware because I've been reading a lot into this, but the Dawn of X is still a Hickman-run thing. So what he's doing is Hickman is supervising all of these books. So every single book is being supervised by Hickman. One of them is being written by Hickman, and another one's being written, co-written by Hickman. The others are all written by different people, but Hickman is supervising the whole thing. So imagine this as like a... Hickman's like the coach, and all of these writers and artists are the players on the team, and they're all just trying to win at this amazing game that they're already winning. So the first Dawn of X book comes out next week, which is X-Men, issue number one, and that's with Jonathan Hickman writing, Laniel Francis Yu on arts and cover, and you guys know that always gets me excited when the artist does the cover as well, plus uh, Laniel Yu is one of my favorite artists, so I'm really excited. There's a ton of great variant covers and the, uh, the story of the X-Men, uh, Hickman has described it as this is sort of a 
each issue is like a one and done sort of big sort of story and uh, I'm really excited to see how that plays out. It says, The X-Men find themselves in a whole new world of possibility, and things have never been better. And it says, uh, Jonathan Hickman and artist Lanil Yu reveal the saga of Cyclops and his hand-picked squad of mutant powerhouses. So that'll be exciting to see kind of how that plays out and what, what that means. All of these issues, these number ones, new number ones, are $4.99, uh, 40 pages. They're a little extra. And then the fo- and these are all coming out week after week after week. So the following week is Ex- I believe it's Excalibur. It might be Marauders, um, but Mar- so we'll just do Marauders. It's Marauders number one, which is written by Jerry Duggan, who also did Infinity Wars, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Savage Avengers. Honestly, guys, he's hit and miss with me, but the things that he's hit on, it has me excited for this because he seems really passionate about this story. Uh, Matteo Lali is doing the art with covers by Russell Dowderman, who is my favorite artist of all of the Marvel artists right now just because of how beautiful his artwork is. So the X-Men sail at dawn. Even in this glorious new dawn, mutant kind faces hardships and oppression from their human counterparts. Led by Captain Kate Pride and funded by Emma Frost and the Hellfire Trading Company, Marauders Storm, Pyro, Bishop, and Iceman sail the seas of the world to protect those hated and feared. And so if you guys were paying attention during uh, House and Powers, uh, that's basically the storyline of them essentially distributing those drugs, those miracle drugs around the world. So I'm really pumped to see what this is. Again, Jerry Duggan has described this as X-Men pirate story, and I'm always down for pirates. Next up, Excalibur, issue number one by Teeny Howard and uh, art by Marcus Toe. So Teeny Howard, she did Age of Conan Belite. She also did the Thanos uh, miniseries, a six-issue miniseries, along with uh, being one of the creators on the Marvel Knights story. I actually don't know a lot about her work. She's a relatively new writer, but she's hit the ground running, and she she was part of a... Donnie Cates had picked her in the squad for Marvel Knights, and she is uh, obviously was picked by Hickman here, too, and so I trust that. I'm really excited to read this one. A New Dawn is Forged. The other world is rocked by war. It is a new era for mutant kind as the new Captain Britain holds the amulet, fighting for the kingdom of Avalon with her Excalibur at her side. Rogue, Gambit, Richter, Jubilee, and Apocalypse. That's got me excited for this. That plus, and this we'll get into this a little further, but uh, the Captain Brit- Britain is Betsy Braddock. So it's 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 uh, uh, Brian Braddock's sister who was Psylocke, but I think something happened in the prior X Men series before all this stuff happened, where Psylocke separated her mind from that body from Betsy Braddock's body, or, or one way or another. I'm gonna have to figure. I'm sure they'll explain it in here, but she's two people now essentially. So it was like it's like uh, Betsy Braddock and Quanin or something, and she's in Fallen Angels, which is coming up, but. This just has me really excited because Apocalypse is on it. You got your Rogue and Gambit, which means there's going to be some romance in this. But Teeny has described this as sort of a fantasy book, um, like an Avalon-type fantasy book, which to me is, you know, that's got me sold. And that kind of takes us to uh, the end of October. And then going and in, moving into November, there are three more new series that are coming. So again, every single week, so the next week, and at this point, they'll start overlapping, so multiple series will come out at the same time. But the next issue or series is New Mutants, which uh, issues one and two, because again, I think they're bi-monthly. But issue one is written by Jonathan Hickman and Ed Brisson. Ed Brisson is a X-Men legend, or I, I would say he's a legend, but I know he's definitely, he's been in the trenches. He's done X-Force, he did uh, Extermination, he did, uh, what is this? I think he did something, oh, he did uh, Old Man, Dead Man Logan. And I think he wrote on Old Man Logan as well. He's really great. I really enjoyed his writing. And Rod Reese is the cover art, cover art and the interior art. So good for him being able to do the, both of them. Issue number two is only written by Jonathan Hickman. So you know that means there's plans in this series because I think the first issue, well, and they'll say it here. So it says, the new generation claims the dawn. The classic New Mutants, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Mirage, Karma, Magic, and Cypher, Get together with a few new friends, Chamber and Mondo, to seek out their missing member and share the good news. 
a mission that takes them into space alongside the Star Jammers. Very exciting. And then the next one is uh, X-Force issues one and two. This is by Benjamin Percy, who is the man who wrote the Wolverine The Long Night podcast and the sequel to it, which I haven't listened to, but I really uh, I'm looking forward to it once it comes to podcasts. And he's also going to be doing the new Wolverine uh, solo series, which is in February, and that's like wave two of Dawn of X. I'm not even going to get there at this point because we we don't even have solicitations for January. But it's uh, he's writing it. Joshua Kassara is on arts, and covers are by Dustin Weaver. Uh, two issues as well, and it says the high price of a new dawn. X Force is the CIA of the mutant world. One half intelligence branch, one half special ops. Beast, Jean Grey, and Sage on one side. That's the intelligence side. Wolverine, Kid Omega, and Domino on the other side, the special ops side. In a perfect world, there would be no need for an X-Force. We're not there yet. Very exciting. And then Fallen Angels, which is by Brian Edward Hill, who I believe is an author. He's written some books. He's pretty active on Twitter. Uh, but I haven't seen or read anything else that he's done. And the art is by Simon Kudransky, who is currently doing uh, Punisher with Matthew Rosenberg right now. I really like his art. Covers by Ashley Whittier. The dawn does not break for all. Psylocke finds herself in this new world of mutant kind, unsure of her place in it. But when a face from her past returns only to be killed, she seeks help from others who feel similar to get vengeance. Cable and X-23 join Kowanin for a personal mission that could jeopardize all of mutant kind. That one has me really intrigued because I know next to nothing about what that one's about. And then in December, uh, there are no new series coming out in December, but we are getting double issues of everything. So X-Men 3 and 4, same by Hickman. It says the most powerful heroes of the dominant species on the planet, the X-Men, rise to protect the world against any threat from a new foe in the Savage Land to an old nemesis's surprising return. And then uh, for New Mutants, for the Ed Brisson issue, issue number three is only written by Ed Brisson. And so it says, while the original New Mutants are off in space, the rest of the youth of Krakoa begin to make the future the way they want to live it. First up, um, Armor's Outreach Party, seeking young mutants who have chosen not to come to Krakoa. Very interesting. And so this is written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano. So Rod Reese is not doing the art. And then the next issue is Rod Reese and Jonathan Hickman. And it says, The team has reached the Shi'ar galaxy only to find the Empire in turmoil. Deathbird returns and she won't let Bobby or Sam get in the way of what she wants. So to me, what I'm getting from this one is that Ed Brisson is going to be writing one half of the story about some of the new mutants on Krakoa and how they're kind of dealing with Krakoa. And then uh, Jonathan Hickman is writing the new mutants who are in space, which to me, that's just how cool is that, 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 that they've got that much thought out that they need two different people writing one series. It's incredible. Uh, Fallen Angels 3 and 4. Psylocke's past continues to haunt her as she molds her companions into a fighting force, but can they take on the children of Apoth? A-P-O-T-H, Apoth. Interesting. It says Apoth approaches. Very, very interesting. And that's issues 3 and 4. And then we've got X-Force issues 3 and 4. And what's interesting is the cover to X-Force issue 3 is uh, it's Jean Grey wearing that Cerebro helmet. It says, The best defense. First, a new team strikes back against the humans who took one of their own. Or the new team strikes back against the humans who took one of their own. Then, with its orders established, the new X-Force hits the ground running, taking on deadly threats targeting mutant kind's rightful place in the world. Uh-oh. And then Excalibur, issues three and four. Captain Britain must face the truth about her brother and choose her path forward as MI-13 and the agents of the crown become aware of her ascension. Ascension? Hmm. As the lighthouse grows, Apocalypse and Richter must master the earth beneath their feet. And the title of this says, The Green Earth Trembles. And there's actually issue three's cover is Apocalypse and Richter like using their powers on the earth. It's kind of crazy. And then the other one is, uh, Betsy Braddock with a psionic sword and shield fighting a dragon. So that's insane. And then Marauders 3 and 4, which uh, it says written by... Oh, interesting. So Jerry Duggan's writing with issue 3 art by Michelle Bandini 
issue four art by Lucas Wernicke. So I'm wondering if same thing that uh, maybe each of the locations they go to is a different artist. Like, hey, that's cool with me. If that's the case, if these are sort of one and done issues, otherwise, I'd be kind of concerned why there's different artists on every issue. But it says Saltwater and Hellfire. Sebastian Shaw recruits a new black bishop, continuing with his machinations against the two queens of the Hellfire Club, which again is why I think that this is Kitty Pride. Meanwhile, Captain Kate and her marauders wreak havoc on the high seas from the Atlantic to the Pacific in the name of the mutant cause. So what I love most about this is these aren't really revealing much. And so I think there's going to be some big stuff in here because Marauders issue three, the cover is Storm, Iceman, Bishop, and Professor Xavier with his helmet on, same Professor X from House of X, with someone coming out of one of those Krakoan eggs, like a resurrection. And we don't know who it is, but that to me just tells me that they're going to be dealing with this stuff that Hickman has been doing in all of these series, which just has me so excited. So like I said, guys, um, I'm going to be picking up all of those issues. Uh, the jury's out if I'm going to be picking up anything else besides them, but I, I really am going to be diving into this Dawn of X just because of how great Jonathan made the first part. And like I said, there are so many unanswered questions, and I want to read all of this to try and eat up as much information as I can so that I can get those questions answered. And with that, guys, I am going to wrap this podcast up. So thank you so much for listening to this, to my review and discussion on House of X and Powers of Ten as a whole, along with a preview of what's to come in Dawn of X. So for Comics and Cinema, I'm your host, Alex Klein, and enjoy reading this series. (laughs) 